the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about why America is addicted to war. And my guest is Dr. W.B. DeLong. He is, he describes himself as a student of human consciousness and spiritual paths, particularly interested in mystical Christianity, Buddhism, the Tao, uh, Sufism, hmm, Sufism, I'll have to ask you about that, uh, Hinduism, yoga, the Kabbalah, and nature-based spirituality. And, uh, Dr. DeLong was a neurosurgeon. He practiced and taught neurosurgery in San Francisco for over 30 years, and he has recently moved to Idaho and um, has been able to spend more time concentrating on um, human consciousness and these various spiritual paths. He's also the author of a novel called The Voices of the Living Grail. So, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Well, how do you pronounce that, S-U-F-I-S-M? Sufism. Sufism. What is that? Sufism is the mystical branch of, uh, of uh, the Islamic religion. Ah. <laughs> Obviously something important to know about. Yeah, Kabbalah is the mystical branch of mm-hmm. Sufism. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, and how does that fit into our current struggles with terrorism? Well, it, it's... Uh, it's rather interesting. Uh, Sufism has, has gotten a big boost in the West, and, and there are a lot of people uh, in the West who are interested in Sufism and, and the precepts. But it has to do with uh, with meditation and uh, experiencing the divine, visualizing the divine. I think if uh, if more Islamics would meditate and follow the path of Sufism, we'd see less uh, terrorists, and we'd also see mm. less crime and violence in this country if more people would, would meditate and, and follow uh, more mystical Christian paths, too. Hmm. Yes, that's, that's very interesting. Um, that's a, that, that, <laughs> I could see a whole movement dedicated to, uh, to, to directing people, the more violent um, believers uh, or people who interpret Islam in a more violent direction, the terrorists, um, the terrorists. <laughs> That could be a useful one way to counter terrorism is to try to direct them into Sufism. Well, why don't we start with um, the main topic that we're going to be talking about, why America is addicted to war, and uh, what you think about that and where you came up with these ideas. Well, the, the problem, of course, is that it's not just America that, it's addicted, that is addicted to war, but it's uh, humankind in general that's addicted to war. And this has been uh, investigated uh, by a number of psychiatrists. As a matter of fact, as I'm sure you're aware, Eric Fromm, in particular, wrote a book called The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness, which uh, explores humankind's uh, tendency toward destructive activity. And Freud, of course, was interested in why uh, humans were so aggressive and had an urge towards the need for death. So uh, these ideas have been around for a long time. 
But one person who influenced me a lot is a psychologist in New York named Dr. Larry Lachan, and he's written a book called, the first book he wrote that came to our attention was How to Meditate, but more recently he's written a a book called The Psychology of War, and it's a fascinating book in terms of examining exactly why we go to war. Okay, but what is your... um... Uh, what is your idea about, um, I mean, I understand that you're, you've looked into uh, the underlying roots of our war addiction. What is your opinion about this? Right. I wrote the novel Voices of the Living Grail to explore the part that myth plays in our lives. And one of the reasons uh, people go to the war, or perhaps the main reason, is because it gets them into a, a mythic mode of existence. And humans need myth. Uh, myths tell us where we've been. They tell us what our culture has been. They give us um, they give us uh, meaning to our lives. But the problem is that when we begin to take myths as a plan of action, or begin to take myths literally, then we get into trouble. We're seeing this now with the Islamic terrorists who, who want to die so they can see the face of God and meet Allah and have the 72 virgins minister to them. And they're taking these uh, these Islamic myths as a plan of action, so that they don't mind uh, dying for their cause. And this is a this is a hard thing. But we see a, a number of uh, of uh, groups and cults take myth as a plan of action, and then we get into trouble. This has been elaborated a lot by Karen Armstrong, the religious writer, the former nun, who's written a lot. And one of her books of particular interest is the Battle for God. A history of fundamentalism, and again, she talks about what happens when people take myth as a plan of action. And um, and but how do you relate that or to addiction? Well, when we when we um, when we go to war, we become uh, more than just a, a small cog. We we become an important cog in a machine, but we come we become something much larger than ourselves. And so we have this exhilarating feeling of, uh, of, of, of uh, fostering the cause of good and attacking evil. Everything becomes black and white. In peacetime, there are shades of gray, and we can evaluate the values of the other side and the culture of the other side uh, from a more humanitarian aspect. But mm-hmm. when we begin to get into a mythic mode, then we see the other side as totally evil. We see our side as good. We'll become exhilarated with the idea that we are becoming something much larger than ourselves. And this, this is an addictive feeling, this exhilaration. Um, and so we don't see any other way to, to solve the problems except uh, follow the mythic path to war. Well, okay, but when you speak of we, are you talking about the citizens of a country or the military personnel of a country or... Well, one of the um, Lachan talks about the mythic uh, modes and sensory modes. The Vietnam War was an example of a sensory war. The, the government never really succeeded in mobilizing the population along mythic lines, so the the citizenship constantly questioned the war, and of, of course this questioning became more aggressive toward the end with the peace marches and all, and finally the American position collapsed, and, and we had to pull out of Vietnam. That was a sensory war. World War One, World War Two were mythic wars because we were good at fighting evil, and so um, so 
um, there are two types of, of ways of approaching war. The job of the leaders in a country is to is to uh, create a mythic mode and to mobilize the population along the lines I, I mentioned, that they're something larger than themselves. And it's a very exhilarating feeling. They're marching songs, people march. Uh, men feel that they are going to be tested, and the women support that in our culture. So the job of the leaders is to mobilize the citizens. Obviously, the war couldn't occur without the citizens. Donovan's song, The Universal Soldier, is a testimony to that. It takes all of us to give him his orders on where to march. But the leaders uh, try to mobilize the people to follow whatever uh, agenda they wish. Well, and and is the word, I think I'm having a little trouble hearing you, is the you said Vietnam was a sensory war? Um, that, that's LaShan's term, a sensory war, in that uh, we are able to look at things more objectively. S-E-N-S-O-R-Y. Yes. Sensory. Right. In, in terms of... Um, in, in terms of rational, you might call it rational also, in that we can reason things out and say, well, should we really go to war? And when we went to Iraq, uh, in the current Iraq war, I mean, uh, the, the administration certainly tried to create a, a mythic mode with uh, Saddam uh, and his By weapons. By calling, calling him the evildoer. Sure, the evildoer. He yeah. was evil, totally evil. We were totally good. He, um, they weren't entirely successful because there was a, a segment of the American population that didn't want to go to war, but still they created a mythic uh, uh, feeling, uh, a mythic mode as we entered the war, the uh, um, shock and awe uh, bombing of Baghdad. Um, and now it's becoming more and more sensory as, uh, as we're into this uh, morass of uh, civil war over there, and we lost almost, what, 2,000 of our own troops plus uh, I don't know how many have been wounded and perhaps hundreds of thousands of Iraqi citizens have died. We're beginning to evaluate uh, just what is this costing us. Yes, and what do you think about the uh, recent arrests in front of the White House of the protesters? Well, again, that's that's part of a mythic mode. It's also part of, uh, of call activity. I know that you had... Uh, the material on, on Tom Cruise and Scientology and cults uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I believe it was. And uh, cults do not like dissent. Um, when an administration, the government, is trying to establish a mythic mode, they don't like dissension, and they will come down hard uh, on dissenters. Um, they don't like uh, for people to take a critical look uh, at, at their position. And so arresting protesters is, uh, is one way to... To establish them. Mm -hmm. um, so, but at the same, okay, but I, I'm not sure if, it seems sort of a contradiction. On the one hand, you're saying that, um, that I guess, President Bush is trying to create a, uh, a myth, a mythic war, but, but our society is, is turning it into a sensory or more rational war. Is that what you're trying to say? I, I think that's I think that's what's happening now. Mm -hmm. I think people are examining are beginning to examine our position in Iraq. People who before perhaps uh, more or less blindly supported the idea that we had to go to war, we had to uh, remove uh, Saddam Hussein as a threat to our own culture. Now they're saying, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea because not enough planning went into what was going to happen over there. And uh, there's a huge amount of the civil war. What's going to happen now when we pull out? When can we pull out? On NPR the other day, they said uh, 
there were no good options. Now we just have to pick uh, the the least uh, or the most desirable of a number of uh, very dangerous uh, options and undesirable options. So it's um it, it, it it's a real problem now. Yes. <laughs> and so is our time. <laughs> we're going to have to take a break okay. uh, right now, but we will come back to this discussion. We're talking about why America is addicted to war, mythic wars, sensory wars, <laughs> war, too much war altogether, actually. My guest uh, is Dr. W.B. DeLong, and uh, he is the author of a novel called Voices of the Living Growl. We will continue talking with him. You're listening to uh, Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Information you need, when you need it, voiceamerica.com. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort as a former race star. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet talk radio, you're listening to voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with Dr. W.B. DeLong. He is a uh, was a practicing neurosurgeon for 30 years, over 30 years in San Francisco. And uh, he had a special interest in body-mind medicine. And he's uh, written a book called The Voices of the Living Grail and has studied human consciousness and uh, we've been talking about why America is addicted to war and the different kinds of wars that there are. And um, I, I know that you have some ideas on uh, the danger that our dependence upon war to resolve conflicts will wipe out the human race and destroy the world, which makes total sense. Where, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about uh, August of 1945 when we dropped the atomic bombs on Japan, the human race at that time became an endangered species because it's just so easy for any conflict to um, uh, escalate into a nuclear conflagration that can easily destroy the world and destroy humanity. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, I think sooner or later it's going to happen. It's almost happened a few times. The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was one example. And unless we can really rein in our tendency to uh, go to war at the drop of a hat, um, we, we can't avoid this constant uh, threat that uh, nuclear weapons will be brought to bear and wipe us out. So I, I think this is a very real threat. Yes, and of course with um, Iran and North Korea, not to mention um, the Middle East, right. it's, it's, or I mean other terrorism in the Middle East, um, it does seem more real every day. Um, and that, of course, you, you relate to this addiction that uh, our country, or I guess what you're saying is people in general um, develop towards war. Uh, that's right. In, in the novel, Voices of the Living Grail, and, and I chose the, the format of fiction because you can sometimes play ideas uh, one against the other more easily than in a, a work of nonfiction. So I, I have some of the characters talking about why people go to war. The novel takes place in the 13th century, and it has to do with the Inquisition coming in and suppressing a country that is on a peaceful spiritual path mm-hmm. with a number of different spiritual pursuits. And uh, the Inquisition comes in and wants to change everything. Uh, but, but the Inquisition contributes economically to the country, so the king is in a double bind. But uh, he and his daughter, who represents uh, the feminine divine and the lack of it in the, in the Catholic Church, at least at the time, uh, are talking about why people go to war. And uh, the, the daughter asked the king, well, don't we have to defend ourselves? And he said, well, yes, but you have to go to war from the standpoint of love and respect for your enemy. You can't go from the standpoint of anger and fear, but you do need to defend yourself. And you don't have to hate the person who is uh, coming after you. You can forgive him and at the same time defend himself and teach him the lessons that uh, he must learn. Um, so, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a difficult problem. Do, can we defend ourselves? Yes, we can defend ourselves, but we have to be very careful when we go to war, and we should certainly have a very good reason if, we, if we're going to go to war against a, a nation like Iraq. It would have been much better to have an effective United Nations who would police tyrants not only in Iraq but in Rwanda and Somalia and the, mm-hmm. all the other hotspots in the world. Yes. And um, and you are relating this to myths. Um, was there anything in addition to what you were saying regarding uh, needing to believe in, in myths in order to find the um, 
the exaltation, I guess, in, in war? Well, Eric Fromm, the, the great psychiatrist who, uh, who wrote The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness and many, many other books, um, talks about, um, uh, um, talks about how humans ha- have a tendency toward, uh, the destructiveness and how by knowing ourselves we can come to know the other people. Conrad Lorenz wrote a book called On Aggression in which he states that human destructiveness is really based on human instinct. Eric Fromm is disagreeing with that and saying it's more on cultural-based passion, the passion for living. And with myths, we get a passion for living, but we can't take them as literal plans of action. And by knowing ourselves through contemplation, through a contemplative practice, through meditation, then we can come to know all of humankind. And this is one thing that I explore in Voices of the Living Grail. Again, if people uh, adopt a meditative practice, a contemplative practice, then they will uh, come to know themselves and will come to recognize that we really are all connected. You know, I find it interesting that as a neurosurgeon um, poking around for 30 years (laughs) in people's brains, uh, literally, that you would have this interest in uh, human consciousness and these various spiritual paths. What, um, and of course, this is an interest in mind-body, what um, kinds of things have you um, come up with for yourself in terms of comparing sort of the, the tangible structures in the brain uh, and you're poking around in them with uh, these ideas of spirituality and consciousness? Well, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about where is consciousness, and uh, I happen to think that it is more than the sum of the parts, of the, more than the sum of the neuroanatomical parts that we can see in the brain. Uh, there's a researcher named Rupert Sheldrake who talks about morphogenetic fields, um, and this is simply the idea that uh, human experience uh, somehow uh, exudes into the, uh, the, the the cosmic reality and other humans can then tap into that. One of his examples is uh, Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile years ago, and after the year after he broke the four-minute mile, then many people broke the four-minute mile. And this is an example that uh, the other people tapped into this morphogenetic field that Roger Bannister created, uh, demonstrating that it was indeed possible. Um, so, so we do. Uh, we uh, I, I think consciousness. Uh, comes from outside the brain. I, I think the mind comes from outside the brain, and this is, of course, a matter of debate. There are reductionists who say, no, it's just all the, the way we're connected together. There's a book, uh, a recent book called On Intelligence, which uh, says really uh, we're just the sum of all the neurons and anatomical connections, but I, I think it's more than that. I think it is more than that. I think we really are all connected on a on a very deep and uh, uh, perhaps uh, mystical level. Well, when you were, um, I, I don't know what the evolution was, the, to- the chronology of um, your interest in these various um, studies of human consciousness, but uh, it must have been an interesting transition for you over 30 years to perhaps start um, up with your surgery and thinking of the brain in one way, and then perhaps um, you know maybe originally when you when you started, were you more, I guess, um, uh, did you focus more on the anatomical? I mean, you would have 
been right after during your residency, let's say. Of course, they're not in neurosurgery residency. I really doubt they're talking very much about, especially over 30 years ago, about um, human consciousness, other than in a scientific way, but not certainly in a spiritual way. So that must have been an interesting journey for you to go from what you were taught anatomically to expanding that. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, well, I, I was actually interested in psychiatry uh, when I was in high school and uh, early in my uh, pre-med training. Then when I when I got into medical school, I got more interested in neurology and surgery. In fact, I was interested in the orthopedic surgery for a while. And then I became more interested in neurology, and uh, I decided that by becoming a neurosurgeon, I could merge together my interest in uh, certainly neurology and surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and But my interest in, uh, in psychiatry and, and uh, psychology remained. Uh, but, uh, yes, you're right. It, uh, it got pushed to a rather dormant spot for a number of years just because of the pressure of uh, learning how to be a neurosurgeon and then carrying out a busy practice. And we're certainly dealing with things in a very mechanical way when we're operating on people's brains. You're, you're working on the structure, and you're certainly not working on consciousness, so you have to be cognizant of areas of the brain, of course, that, that subserve uh, functions of language and things like that. But still, you're right. We don't think very much about consciousness, and certainly neurosurgery in general does not address this, although there have been neurosurgeons from time to time who have done research on it. But uh, then it, it, as time went on, I began to get more and more uh, interested in the personal development field. I was a uh, trainer for Tony Robbins' uh, organization for a couple of years in the early 1990s, so I became very interested in personal development and neurolinguistic programming, which is an offshoot of hypnosis. I became interested in Milton Erickson, who was a famous psychiatrist, practiced in Phoenix for a number of years and developed a form of hypnosis uh, which was very useful in medical therapeutics. And then um, uh, John uh, Grinder and Richard Bandler uh, adopted his hypnotic techniques to a system called neuro-linguistic programming. Tony Robbins taught that and has refined it to a very uh, high degree so that he can uh, really have an influence in people's lives by teaching them uh, ways to affect their beliefs and um, uh, and the, the way they react to situations. And I found this very interesting. But the uh, the personal development field in general stops a little short of of, uh, of spirituality, and you really have to get into contemplation and meditation uh, to begin to look at that, uh, begin to look more at consciousness and spirituality. Mm-hmm. I was just sort of imagining. Uh... <laughs> you know, how it must be uh, in the operating room and how it was at the beginning and how it was at the end, at the beginning when you were just kind of concentrating more mechanically, as you said, um, and at the end where your mind was perhaps sometimes wandering to, uh, you know, what this person, um, to seeing the person that you were operating on as... uh, as having neurological and and, um, conscious and spiritual functions that were beyond what it was that you were actually uh, doing. Yeah, well, that sounds like break music. Should we answer that after the break? (laughs) Sure. Okay, we'll take a break now. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about why America is addicted to war, what it's like to be a neurosurgeon, (laughs) and all things in between. And stay tuned, where my guest today um, is Dr. W.B. DeLong. 
the author of a book, Voices of the Living Grail, and uh, we'll continue talking about in these, this stream of consciousness uh, when we come back. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Basile, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on VoiceAmerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for Crust Busting Your Way to an Awesome Life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are, or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard's Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard's Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard's Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking with my guest, Dr. W.B. DeLong, um, who, and the, the topic today, believe it or not, is why America is addicted to war, and I sort of, uh, he's, he has been a neurosurgeon for 30 years, and I think my, um, <laughs> my stream of consciousness has taken us to <laughs> other areas, but I, I couldn't help, uh, visualizing, um, Dr. DeLong in the operating room, starting out as a young, 
um, resident, and uh, you know, certainly having been in a psychiatry resident and actually a medicine uh, uh, a year of straight medical internship as well as a year and a half of um, rotating internship in different medical fields. I mean, everybody is very intense in those years. <laughs> and you're taught things, you know, words like consciousness, meditation, um, mind, body, um, really, you know, do not enter into what you're learning. So I was just sort of imagining what it would be like to uh, try to be a good resident and focus on what your teachers, the other doctors are telling you to do, you know, on the different on the different um, anatomical structures, and then as you begin to get more interested in these other aspects, more spiritual and aspects, just sort of uh, not being as intent and kind of having your mind wander to more spiritual or meditative things as the person is lying on the operating table. That was my vision. Did you want to comment more about that? Well, it, it's ironic, but the, if house officers would... Uh meditate for a few minutes each morning they'd probably be a much better That's able true. to withstand the stress I, I i think you commented in one of your programs recently about your time in the bellevue emergency room and uh-huh. uh, i just can imagine the stress of that i was in the mass general emergency room during my general surgical training and uh it certainly is stressful but uh, if we could take a few minutes and uh, meditate before we started the day that would be very beneficial our society isn't really into that a lot but uh, we're, uh, more and more people are looking at a contemplative practice, and it doesn't take very long. Just, uh, a few minutes a day can really get you into a very relaxed uh, mode and get you into uh, a, uh, a, um, a mode of being that's really beyond your, your own uh, self-interest, which uh, I, I think could be very beneficial for our culture in general. Absolutely. Did did you um, did you start telling patients not when they were in surgery, but um, when you saw them afterwards, or maybe even before, um, about the value for whatever it was, whatever their neurosurgical problem was? Did you try to teach your patients about uh, meditating and becoming more spiritual? Uh, I, I didn't really um, push them toward meditation, but I did uh, engage people in hypnosis, in preoperative hypnosis, mm. uh, for a while, and it was very beneficial. It, it just uh, it was just too time consuming. I just didn't have the time to do it. But if I could spend half an hour with them uh, the evening before surgery and take them on a, a gentle trip of visualization, visualizing wellness and comfort, uh, able to eat comfortably after the surgery, able to walk uh, comfortably. Uh, being comfortable, not using the words pain because that suggests something other than comfort, uh, but um, just uh, uh, doing that with them, uh, they they did well. They used less pain medication, and they got um, they got well faster. But again, I, I just didn't have the time to do it. But what I did do uh, always um, from that point on, uh, which is probably for the last 15 years that I practiced, was as they were coming out of anesthesia, I would give them positive suggestions. Like, um, um, like you're going to be very comfortable. You're waking up comfortably and easily. You'll be able to urinate very comfortably. That was to help them avoid a catheter. You'll be able to you eat tell comfortably. Them to wait until after they got out of the <laughs> off the operating table for that. Yeah, yes, in the recovery room. <laughs> and uh, able to walk comfortably, able to eat comfortably to help them avoid nausea. Um, and uh, and I used them. Um, when I, uh, I I did a lot of injection therapy for uh, low back pain, injured ligaments in the back and, and neck and other joints for a while too, and I would uh, give them suggestions of uh, 
of, uh, of comfort again. You'll feel me working in this area a bit. Instead of you're going to feel a needle stick now, mm. you don't want to say that. You want to stay away from uh, uh, ideas that impart uh, um, the, the idea that pain will ensue. And instead, you'll feel me working here a little bit, and, uh, but uh, you'll be very comfortable in just a moment. Um, uh, the thing, things like that that, uh, that help them uh, go through uh, what, you're, <laughs> what you're doing with them. Yes, well, I, um, I'm a very strong believer in guided imagery for different uh, psychological problems as well as physical ones. Yeah. It absolutely works. Um, okay, where, where are we going from here? Um, one of the things that I, during the break, I know that you mentioned that is something that interests, well, actually, before we get into that, there was something um, that I had read in your bio that interested me, which was um, you talked about uh, having studied nature-based spirituality, and you were saying that that was in relation to some pagan religions. Well, the earth-based uh, religions, the, uh, the the pagan uh, shamanism, um, uh, nature spirituality, uh, Wicca is one that's been popularized. Stregaria, uh, popularly known as Italian witchcraft, um, is another that's uh, based on the ancient religion of Tuscany. I hesitate to use the word witchcraft because that has negative connotations, all the Halloween images. But uh, witches, in the in the traditional sense, were were very kind, uh, good people. They were healers. Uh, they were in touch with spirituality, um, with the with the divinity and all things. They were in touch with both the the female as well as the male uh, aspects of divinity, which a lot of uh, current religions have gotten away from. That is, they've gotten away from the femi- feminine aspect. In Voices of the Living Grail, I, um, I, I have a Jewish Kabbalistic master debating with the uh, Cardinal of the Inquisition that the Catholic Church has presented their, the, the faithful with only half of the image of the divine because they've left out the divine feminine. Yeah. Um, and they, they have this debate about where the divine, feminine, uh, the divine feminine needs to come back into religion and spirituality. And uh, the voices of the living grail is, is a, the, a metaphor for the return of the divine feminine to our spirituality. Yes, and at the end of the show, we will be giving out the uh, <laughs> the website where you all can go and look um, to see more about that, to look at what that's about and uh, where you could get it. Um, you know, did you do any studies of uh, the um, South American or the Amazon shamans? Well, yeah, I've been interested in in, uh, in the in the psychedelic uh, drug called ayahuasca. <laughs> I is, took ayahuasca. Oh, did you really? I'd be <laughs> fascinated with your experiences about that, but I guess I can't interview you about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe later. That would be a switch. Um, well, I, I've been quite upfront about that. I during the um, at the millennium, um, I spent two weeks in the um, Peruvian Amazon. Oh, how wonderful! And um, the, it was two weeks with four shamans, mm. and it was an incredible, life-changing experience. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, they were doing their rituals, and part of the rituals was taking this drug, uh, a hallucinogenic, not recreational drug called ayahuasca, and the point of it was to um, try to visualize, uh, well, the, the visions that would come to you would be answers to questions that you had because mm. um, the idea was to start the two weeks 
asking the shamans different questions and mm-hmm. and uh you know these these ceremonies were not only to bring the spirit gods who could help with um resolving these questions or answering these questions but um also the visions through ayahuasca now this is not something that um I would recommend to anyone mm-hmm. it's not like uh you know this is not it's not like um a drug that you would take to have fun by any means because um, there were a lot of bodily re- reactions that were not very much fun, yeah, like uh, vomiting yeah. out um, uh, burdens or uh, evil experiences or, or negative experiences, things that bring you down. Um, and you know, so it's it's uh, and, and even the visions, which were sort of like um, a kaleidoscope of cartoons, in the sense that. It had the brightness of cartoons, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it wasn't not necessarily cartoon figures, although that was part of it. But you were supposed the only part that was rather difficult is um, was trying. The visions were coming so quickly that it was very hard to make sense of them, at, especially at the time, yeah. uh, as far as they're answering your questions afterwards. Just like dreams, a psychoanalysis mm-hmm. of dreams, you can look at these things and and um, and make connections, but it is an—it's an overwhelming experience. And when you know, you do have to be careful that when you do it, that you are with um, true shamans. Uh, yes. You know, not uh, shamans are us. Right. <laughs> um, there are people who sort of present themselves as shamans, but they're yeah. really faux shamans, uh, or and some of them are black magic shamans. Um, and so you do have to be really careful about the whole thing. Something that I appreciated only once I was there yeah. and went through this. But um, oh, it sounds like a wonderful experience. It was. It was really amazing. Well, you would really resonate with one of the passages in Voices of the Living Grail, because in that book I have the Kabbalistic Master taking ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Though I don't call it that uh, in the book, it, uh, the ingredients are the same, and uh, it's given to him by a group of Sufis to kick-start his contemplative uh, practice. And uh, so I, I have that happening in the book, coincidentally enough. Well, you so. know, it's, what's interesting um, about this is not only, I mean, I, I'm just sort of giving you and, and the listeners a glimpse into this. It was obviously right. a much more uh, involved, uh, detailed, uh, extraordinary experience. But, but, um, but you know, one of the things that it does is give you a sense of the fact that there is something beyond the life that we lead every day. You right. know that mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there's something so much bigger out there, um, existing after death, existing now. Yeah, um, absolutely. In a kind of parallel universe, and and so many people are just so. Um, it's hard to fathom these things unless you've really been exposed to it. Right. But anyway, we, we do need to take another break. Um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. W.B. DeLong. When we come back, we will talk more um, about why America is addicted to war and why we're going on this, uh, on this stream of consciousness today. Mm-hmm. the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? 
Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Getterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is voiceamerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race stars. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. W.B. DeLong. Um, he is the author of a book called Voices of the Living Grail. He's a uh, he's been a neurosurgeon for 30 years, teaching neurosurgery and as well as practicing it, and uh, calls himself a student of human consciousness and spiritual paths, and we've been talking about some of these paths. And um, did you, was there something you wanted to add before the break? Well, I was just uh, thinking about your, your ayahuasca experience, which I, which I think is fascinating. Um, there's a seminar that's given every year, uh, uh, sometimes in the U.S., sometimes out of it, called Mind States. Uh, and I've been to a couple of those, and uh, they look at the uses of um, of uh, the class of uh, medications that's called uh, psychedelics classically, and they point out that they really should be called entheogens because their use can be spiritual, and the entheogen means God within, and so used properly, they are designed to bring out spirituality, uh, not uh, uh, that's opposed, of course, to their purely recreational use. But so entheogens are, are a useful compound. And again, we're talking about war and the addiction to war and the mythic quality of war. And the war on drugs is a tremendous example of that because uh, all, all uh, drugs have been, have been uh, demonized, all uh, drugs that aren't strictly legal. 
And, of course, there's no more demonic drug than alcohol in terms of what it costs our society, but that's that's okay because that hasn't been declared illegal. Everything else is demonized, marijuana, um, ayahuasca, um, MDMA called ecstasy. All these have been demonized and declared routinely bad, but there are a lot of good qualities to marijuana. It's not a black-and-white issue. Medical marijuana is very well established as an excellent uh, pain reliever, as a compound that helps people uh, through chemotherapy. It abolishes the nausea of chemotherapy. It helps people with glaucoma. Uh, it can help people with AIDS. Uh, marijuana is a very useful compound, and yet it's demonized, and it's very hard for researchers to get hold of it, even to study it. Um, and then MDMA ecstasy now has been found to, uh, to relieve post-traumatic stress syndrome and other problems, psilocybin in mushrooms, uh, can relieve the uh, anxiety and terminal uh, cancer patients. There's research that needs to be done. LSD needs to be studied as a psychotherapeutic tool. And there's uh, evidence that post-traumatic stress syndrome, when used with a psychotherapist who understands psychotherapy as well as the use of uh, the, the medications, uh, the, the MDMA can really kickstart uh, the cure of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And so these things do need to study, yet, yet we can't study them because they've been demonized in this mythic war on them declared by uh, by the government. And do you have some opinions as to why that is, why that war was declared as opposed to on some of these substances as opposed to alcohol? Well, I have read that it started in the 1930s um, by the uh, by the uh, alcohol and tobacco lobbies that they were the marijuana had uh, had taken the place of alcohol during prohibition to some degree. And of course, when alcohol again became legal, now again, this is um, this is you know floating around the internet, and I, I don't know whether this is valid or not. But my information is that the uh, alcohol and, and tobacco lobbyists really put a lot of pressure on uh, on uh, Congress to declare marijuana illegal, and they demonized this thing. The Mexicans were going to use marijuana and bring it up from the border and uh, cause crime and and violence in your society, so they demonize not only the poor Mexicans, but marijuana as well. Um, and uh, Congress bought it, and uh, gradually uh, um, marijuana has become more and more illegal, and with it, um, the other the other drugs too. Yes, have you been in touch? I, I did a show a few months back um, about when about marijuana being, uh, uh, new laws being passed to even make it Harder for medical marijuana to um, to be given to people, and I know that San Francisco, where you used to practice neurosurgery, was hardest hit probably of of any place in the right. states. What are, are you still in touch with people there, and what are they saying about this? What has been the impact? I I, I don't I don't know. I'm not in touch uh, with them about that topic. I I, uh, I know uh, Ed Rosenthal I think really got uh, entrapped and taken on that whole issue. Um, I, I think it was really uh, trying to provide a service uh, to our culture and to the community, and the government just really stamped all over him. And again, uh, this, uh, there, there's an organization called um, the Fully Informed Jury Association. I think if the jury had been fully informed as to their rights, they never would have found him guilty. Um, FIJA uh, would have gone a long way toward informing that jury that they weren't being told the whole story during that trial. Mm. And again, I, I think uh, it, it's, it's just a, a travesty on, on justice that that whole thing happened. Did you, uh, was marijuana involved in any way in, in 
with your patients? I mean, did you, for example, uh, discharge people and give them prescriptions for medical marijuana? Yeah, if I had have had more courage, I would have. I, I, I was afraid. I was afraid of the government. And, uh, uh, you know, your doctor's license is at stake, and they can come down on you for that. The feds can come down on you, even though there is a California law that medical marijuana is fine. A number of other states have passed similar laws. But the feds, because they're committed to this mythical, uh, I, I think, misguided war on drugs, they still uh, won't let the states uh, have their way, and they're coming down on physicians who do prescribe it. So I, I was afraid to prescribe it. But uh, I, I would certainly uh, direct people, I would certainly tell people that I thought marijuana might help them and uh, something like ask your kids, you know, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> Not ask your doctor, ask your kids. <laughs> ask your kids where you can get some pain medication. You know. Yes, it's, it's sad that, yeah, it you know, that uh, people would feel that endangered to, to have to do that. I mean, of course, you don't want to lose your practice, but... Um, uh, I mean, I guess probably there were also some colleagues, though, who who were given prescriptions, or was that not not very many? I, I think uh, I think most MDs are afraid uh, to give the prescriptions, and I, I don't know who. Uh, certainly, some physicians are, and I admire them for their courage in doing so and applaud it. Yes, I guess uh, I guess what I'm thinking of maybe more is are the uh, medical marijuana centers, the um, what were they, the cannabis clubs, right? Yeah. Which weren't really medically, um, you just needed a prescription though, but they weren't really organized by doctors. Right. Although I think there was one, as a matter of fact, that at least it was. Well, I, I personally think marijuana should be legalized, maybe controlled, maybe taxed, that's okay. But it should be legalized. I think we're committing far too many resources toward putting people in jail for uh, having a few ounces of marijuana or growing the marijuana. And uh, marijuana is much more benign than alcohol. As far as I know, there's never been an OD death from uh, mm-hmm. the, the use of, of marijuana in, in its pure form. Um, never been an OD, but how many people have died from alcohol? Yeah. Uh, marijuana impairs people less than alcohol. Um, so uh, and some people facetiously call it the war on some drugs. You know. <laughs> yes, well, that's true. That's Yes, absolutely. And, and uh Certainly, the lobbying it would make sense that that would that would determine which of the drugs right. the war is on. And again, uh, it's a it's a uh, prime example of the mythic quality of of a war in which the these substances have been demonized. The government does not want dissent. Um, you're looked on with suspicion if you say things like we're saying now. Um, if it comes to the government's attention, uh, they they are suspicious of this uh, kind of thought. And again, it's just the very typical of the mythic nature of of war. Well, one thing, though, that I do need to say as a psychiatrist is that um, all of these drugs, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or ecstasy or ayahuasca, um, you know, can, of course, be dangerous um, in the sense of of um, not if you're not aware of what kinds of side effects these things can have. Obviously, right. there are all kinds of problems that can occur when you think that you're in full control of your senses and you're not or when you become addicted to some of these right. things or when you um, take marijuana. You know, if, if there isn't a medical problem and it is just recreational, certainly I have seen um, people who have become lethargic. That is one of the side effects taken in, in chronically, becoming lethargic and not really participating in life as much. So, so there are some things right. that need to be looked out for, but I, I do agree that the government is very picky. 
<laughs> so there are other things that are motivating their war. Yeah. Um, do give out the uh, the uh, web address of oh. your book, and so that people can look into that. Oh, sure. www.livinggrail.com. Livinggrail.com, and it's available on Amazon also. And that's uh, L-I-V-I-N-G-G-R-A-I-L.com. Right. One word, livinggrail.com. Okay. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Dr. W.B. DeLong, for this trip that we've <laughs> taken without drugs. At least I can speak for no myself. Drugs. No drugs, that's right. <laughs> and uh, we thank you very much. We've been talking about why America is addicted to war, your book, Voices of the Living Grail, and uh, what it's like to be a neurosurgeon for 30 years and then go on a mind-body uh, quest and a quest into human consciousness and spiritual paths. So it's really been very interesting today. Thank you very much. Again, the uh, website address for your novel is livinggrail.com. This has been Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, on voiceamerica.com. Thank you, Dr. Carol. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.